what I'll get you to do is just imagine you're meeting me for the first time. <laughs> just say hi, your full name, and tell me what your favorite food is and why. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Gemma Crawley. My favorite food is chocolate. And why? And why? Why my favorite food is chocolate? Oh, so many reasons, so many flavors. Uh, great after work snack. I would like to kind of start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I would just maybe like to paint a bit of a timeline as to your initial diagnosis when that was, if you can't remember the exact details. It was three years talk. ago yesterday. So, yeah, <laughs> I wrote it all down. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, Mother's Day three years ago. And what happened at that time? So, I was a McDonald's manager working pretty long, hard hours full time. So, five days a week. And I was going to the gym every single day with one of my managers, one of my best friends. I was going to music festivals and things. And I think it just kind of crept up on me. Like the symptoms kind of went unawares because it was like fatigue and a bit of back pain. So you just assume you're unfit or you assume it's a bad mattress. So I probably should have gone to the doctors a few months before but because they're such gradual symptoms, it, yeah, it just kind of crept up on me. And then I went to the doctors one day and was like, I'm having difficulty breathing. They did a X-ray and my lungs were completely full of fluid. And they were like, you need to go to emergency now. And then they drained it all off. They did a biopsy and they were like, you have Ewing sarcoma. I was like, what the hell is that? So, yeah, (laughs) that was on the 14th. Yeah, what the hell is that? So, Ewing sarcoma is a bone cancer in young adolescents. It happens mostly from the age of 10 to 20. So, I got diagnosed when I was 21. I'm 24 now. It is really, really rare. And it's like a chromosome mishap. So, it's a mutation of the cells. They don't really know what causes it. They think it might be linked to puberty because it's normally in the bones near the growth plates. So mine's actually in the soft tissue of the lungs, but most patients that are diagnosed are in the pelvis or in the femur or in the ribs or in the collarbone. So I have a really rare cancer in a really rare spot. (laughs) And when you say rare? I think it's two in a million children in the world. So what's that percentage? I don't know. (laughs) Two children per million worldwide have Ewing sarcoma. Yeah. What changed within your everyday following that point? So from going to working full-time, going to the gym every single day, working at McDonald's, I had to completely stop everything. I was currently doing a Bachelor of Business at UTS as well, and I had to get my stepbrother to cancel all my subjects for me and get them all reimbursed so I wouldn't have to pay for them and I wouldn't get fail grades. So I completely took the whole year off uni, the whole year off work. Stopped going to the gym (laughs) every day. I was just like, what on earth? Like, what is this? How did I get this? Because I have a long family history of different cancers. Like everyone extended family-wise has eventually passed away from some form of cancer, but in their 70s, in their 80s, in their 90s. I was like, I'm so young. So I've actually done this thing called genomic profiling. So they do a molecular screening of your 
genetics and the genetics of your tumour and they found nothing. So it's not linked to anything, not linked to any family history. It's just so random. So I was a bit like, why me? When many are diagnosed with cancer, their first priority is their health. And understandably, jumping on top of it as soon as you can is the best way to go about treatment. After having surgery to remove the liquid from her lungs, Gemma immediately started IVF, as after 14 rounds of chemo over the next nine months, her chances of fertility would be drastically reduced. When that was done, it was another surgery to insert the portacath, which is a device that goes into the vein lining your chest, which when undergoing chemo helps to dilute it and stop the veins from clogging and collapsing. The stress on the body is immense, but for many living with cancer, there's an untold side to the story, where it's not just the physical expense, but the financial costs that trickle into the everyday, that pile up and up to exorbitant amounts. Today on the show, you'll hear exactly what these costs are, and what's being done to bring them down. listening to Think Health, I'm Jake Morecambe. A report released in January by Deloitte Access Economics, backed by the youth cancer advocacy group Canteen, found the cost of cancer for a young Australian, between the ages of 15 and 25, would near around $1.3 million over their lifetime. That sounds about right. Like um, the amount of drugs, the pre-meds, the post-meds, the therapies, the alternate alternative complementary therapies. Like I've done a lot of massage, like remedial massage, more for a mental and whole well-being kind of thing. But my doctors have definitely recommended it. But then there's even the hidden costs like parking at hospitals and driving to the hospital and then the tolls to get to the hospital. So today alone would have cost me a toll to get to Westmead, parking at Westmead driving to Westmead, and then, you know, the whole day off work. How much is that? That's one day. So, yeah, it adds up. When Gemma began her treatment, fortunately, much of it was covered under Medicare. When it comes to your scans, your blood work, your chemo, your radiation, it's all covered by Medicare. Under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, sometimes there's a slight gap that needs to be paid, which does bring the cost down quite drastically. I think it's $30 per drug rather than the thousands of dollars per drug. Like, for instance, I had chemo today. I have to take home this injection that I have to take tomorrow, which would originally cost $1,500 per injection. But I just I just get it. It's just covered. So that's, that's great. great. Yeah, that's free. But those gap payments do build up over time. And that definitely adds up to be, I think it's like... a year per cancer patient, depending on what kind of cancer you have. 
So imagine if there was no Medicare coverage at all. It would be ridiculous. There are, however, costs that are neither subsidised by the government nor can be anticipated. During Gemma's first rounds of chemo, she developed something called neutropenic. Which is when your white cells plummet, so you've got literally no immune system. So if you come into contact with someone with a cold, you'll get extremely sick and you can potentially get pneumonia and get like really sick, like you can die from it. So I got neutropenic about four or five times, but each time that happens, you've got to get an ambulance to come out. That's like $400. Nearing $2,000 in ambulance costs alone. A lot of those costs, I guess, could be cut if I was just at home not doing anything, but (laughs) I was out living life. Because you don't know when it's going to happen. It's just, it just happens. But I mean, I only got neutropenic four times. My chemo buddy got neutropenic every single round. So 14 times. So everyone goes through treatment differently. It all adds up different ways. These costs also aren't just limited to the person living with cancer. But according to cancer health economist Alison Pierce, also include unpaid employment. So people who are taking time off work to look after kids, people who care for an elderly relative, even just things like cooking and cleaning in the house. If you're sick and unable to do those things because of your cancer or its treatment, then someone has to pick up those roles. Which in Gemma's situation... All my carers and family members and stuff have taken kind of a roster and taken days off work, each of them to drive me to treatment because I've actually crashed my car about six times because I've got chemo brain and I'm too tired and I can't drive myself to treatment. Thank God I've never hurt anyone or hit anyone. It's just been scraping poles and whatnot. But I literally can't drive myself to treatments because I get too tired because they're so long and they're so draining that my stepmom takes me or my dad takes me or my boyfriend takes me or Amanda, my twin sister, takes me. Amanda's had to take extra days off to, you know, clean so I don't get sick to buy the groceries, even little things just to like organize my social life, (laughs) like to make sure I still go out and see people and do stuff. So, yeah. It's these sort of unpaid costs, the direct and indirect, that make the overall national cost of cancer hard to quantify. But there are some things we do know, And that's cancer doesn't necessarily end when remission begins. Definitely people's side effects can continue a long time after their treatment's finished. And the financial impacts of those can continue for a long time. You might need a special diet for the rest of your life. You might need uh, to be going to follow-up visits for the next five or ten years after your cancer's cured and you're still having scans to check whether it's come back or spread. You're still going to the specialist to see how you're going. You're still having more visits with your GP. The ongoing concern about expenses post-treatment has a name – Something Alison says is called financial toxicity, which is... The idea that cancer comes with a cost to the patient, a financial cost. But it's not just that in itself which impacts the patient. There's this stress or anxiety associated with having to meet those costs, which in itself is a side effect of the cancer and its treatment. 
meaning it's not just the anxiety around how much it costs, but how distressing it can be to individuals to have to make those payments. And so, for some people, the extra costs of cancer might not seem very much, and so that doesn't worry them. But for other people, having to pay those extra amounts and having to budget for them and giving up other things in order to pay for that can be really distressing. For Gemma, much of her anxiety was centred around securing her salary through income protection insurance to cover her during the period in which she was unable to work. Income protection is typically on offer to those living with a chronic illness, of which will pay you up to seventy-five percent of your wage. However, even if to her doctors, her specialists, family, and friends, Gemma's situation alone would guarantee her this cover, the process of securing income protection isn't as easy as just ticking a box. In fact, it's much more cutthroat. There's so much paperwork involved. Like with the income protection, it was such a battle because my parents aren't actually married. They're not actually engaged either. It's two separate families that have come together. So it's my dad and my stepmom. So when they're analysing your dual income family, like whether or not your parents could support you, it was such a messy situation trying to figure out well whose incomes count because my dad's unemployed but my stepmom works a lot. So it was like ooh. What works here, and then there's also the are you actually sick enough? So yeah, you've got cancer, but people with cancer can work. Like I'm an example of that right now. I can work, but it's like how sick are you? Are you really not able to work at all? Can you not do one day a week? So they, these people would be calling me, being like, you can't just do a three hour shift. So they try to make you work something so that you're not on income protection, but then it's only going to be a three hour. Wage a week versus potentially seventy percent of my salary, and then it's paperwork every single month to make sure that you're still sick enough, and then you know you're not getting income from anyone else because like I'm living with my twin sister. Oh, so your twin sister can't afford to pay your side of the rent? It's like no, she did that once and it was so bad. <laughs> Accessing insurance isn't just limited to income protection. Even pursuing travel, trauma, and life insurance for those living with cancer can be an uphill battle. But not just for those currently diagnosed, but people in remission, and even those who've been cancer-free for more than five or ten years, can also be pushed back. Sondra Daverin works as a senior legal policy advisor at the McCabe Centre for Law and Cancer, and explains that accessing private health insurance in Australia, by law, is non-discriminatory. Everyone can get insurance that's the same, essentially, regardless of health status, history, or whether or not you're a smoker. But in other types of insurance, like life and income protection, it's risk-rated. So the insurers will create a profile of you, like they did with Gemma, to assess whether or not you qualify for insurance, or whether or not you're sick enough, which essentially gives them a license to discriminate effectively based on certain risk factors. Meeting the criteria for insurance is the way the industry runs, and isn't anything new. But Sondra notes there's a problem stirring. The key issue at the moment in Australia is that. There are denials of insurance products, life insurance, travel insurance, income protection insurance, that aren't being made on the basis of evidence, and people are being refused insurance where they probably should be permitted to have it. So essentially, that there is unlawful discrimination occurring within the insurance industry, and 
we know that people affected by cancer have been impacted by these types of denials. If not denied altogether, people may also be charged higher than average premiums or cover costs that are unfeasible. But Sandra says the biggest concern is that in some cases, insurers are using the results from genetic testing as a means to deny insurance. Even though there's not actuarial or statistical evidence to back up that refusal. And if we think about it, these are people who may be asymptomatic. They may have been taking a test in order to undergo preventative measures to maybe monitor their health more closely, but they're also trying to get life insurance. They may never develop cancer because some genetic tests are really only predictive. They don't guarantee that a person would develop a condition, but they are still being denied insurance and denied access to insurance because of the results of that test. And quite often in ways that would be unlawful under the Disability Discrimination Act. Protected under the provisions of the Disability Discrimination Act, those living with cancer can exercise legal rights if struggling to access these financial services, including insurance. But too, if experiencing discrimination in the workplace, where many after being diagnosed fear they won't be allocated time off work, or could even be sacked. Oh, and it seems like a pretty awful thing to think about somebody with cancer or somebody who survived cancer then facing discrimination. Um, I think that's that's pretty abhorrent to a lot of people. But this is not to say that people with cancer are protected entirely from discrimination. Gemma, after 14 rounds of chemotherapy, went into remission and during that time started a new job at a candle shop. From here, she came off income protection that she secured through her job at Macca's and was in a completely new work environment. However, she says her new boss was very understanding, having gone through breast cancer treatment herself and told her no matter what her hours, no matter how much annual and sick leave she has left, they would still pay her salary in full. And although Gemma says she's been super fortunate to not experience any sort of discrimination in her new job, she knows what the weight of that pressure feels like. Even though I have such a great deal going on at the moment, there is a part of me that's like kind of a bit guilty if I do have to take extra days off. Like, will that affect my job security? I know the bosses have said, it's totally fine, go for it. But there's a part of me that just wants to work really hard because they've done this for me now as well. So there's a bit of that stigma. But even when I was in my previous job with McDonald's, it was the kind of work environment that is so hard, like such a hard working environment, such long hours that if you're sick, they're just going to replace you. Like you're just collateral damage. These factors of workplace discrimination affecting job security and denial of insurance do more than just emotionally and financially stress the individual. Up next, you'll hear how cancer is putting more and more pressure on the Australian economy.
And, and when it came to your re-diagnosis, when was this and what happened? Um, this was October. So I've had seven cycles of chemo since October. Uh, it was just after my, my scan, my checkup. I went to the doctor's. Normally I'd go in, sit down. Everything's fine. Don't freak out. They tell me as soon as I walk in the door because it's what I want to know. <laughs> I'd be like, Gemma, you're fine. It's clear. We'll see you in three months. You'll get another scan. So I sat down and I could see it on their face. And I was like, God damn it. He was like, they're, they're there. The tumors were still there, but it's the fact that they were starting to grow again. So I had an extra three tumors and they'd all doubled in size. So I have 23 tumors at the moment in my lungs. I only had 20 and they were like half a centimeter big. So really, really, really small, but they'd all doubled in size to about two centimeters, three centimeters, whatever that is, plus another three. So that's why they were like, no, we've got to, we've got to do more chemo. We can't let this keep growing. We can't let you have any more tumors. Like we can't risk it going elsewhere. So I was like, great, awesome chemo again. Yay, that was really fun. Sorry. <sighs> I try not to get emotional about it. <sighs> like one in three people get diagnosed. So, you know, it's crazy to think that at some point in your life, you could be the one with cancer and we have absolutely no idea about everything that comes with it because I did have a friend who stopped talking to me because of all this because he couldn't deal with it he couldn't cope with it and I get that you know everyone's got their own struggles and everyone's got their own battles but if someone has a battle like this and you can't be there for them in their worst time that's just so selfish and I think as a friend, if a friend of yours goes through something like this, you need to suck it up and you need to be there for them. I think that's the hardest thing. Losing friends because you have cancer is the worst. I have a customer that comes into my store almost every day. She's beautiful. Her name is Lisa. She had a brain cancer. She had a portion of her brain removed. So she's a little bit on the outside, <laughs> but she's beautiful, but she's literally lost every single one of her friends. And so she's become very close with me. We have Facebook friends. We go get coffee, but she literally lost everyone because of her brain cancer, except her partner. And I just think that's so sad. I think if that ever happened to me, oh my God, I don't even know. So I'm very grateful to have such great friends because it's literally only been like one friend that I've lost, but it's just, it's just hard. It sucks. Estimations from Cancer Australia say in 2018 alone, nearly 140,000 people will be diagnosed with cancer. The Cancer Council estimate that one in two Australian men and one in three Australian women will be diagnosed by the age of 85. 
However, Alison Pierce, health economist from the University of Technology Sydney, says these lines are beginning to blur. People often think about cancer as something that happens to older people, but increasingly it's happening to younger people. And especially as people start working longer, you know, the push for the retirement age to increase, it means even those cancers that do typically happen in older people are more common in the working population. With more within this demographic affected, this is putting a greater financial burden on the economy at large, where more treatment takes place, more time is taken off work, more absences, ultimately resulting in a drop in productivity. Much of Alison's research is looking into this and the implications cancer has for the greater economy. People who are younger, who are diagnosed with very aggressive cancers and therefore take a lot of time off work, that obviously has the biggest impact on the economy. Is that because there's less people going into the workplace? Like, what does that effect actually look like? So the way we quantify lost productivity, there's a couple of different methods. The most common one is that we look at how long a person would have had left in the workforce what their projected income would have been based on their age and their gender. And then we project out how much they would have been paid over their lifetime. And we're using their salary as a proxy for their contribution to the economy. So obviously, if you're diagnosed younger and you take a very long time off work, then that adds up to a lot more than if you're just a few years before retirement and and you just take a couple of years off work. It's an interesting way of looking at it, as in, the numbers sometimes are a little bit pessimistic in a way to say that perhaps there's a young person who only has a certain duration of, you know, a career kind of taking into account different factors. Obviously, the number of people who get cancer each year or the number of people in Australia who've had a cancer diagnosis, that statistics like incidence and prevalence are really important as a way of quantifying how big a problem cancer is. But the idea that we could use economic data and information about the impact of cancer on the economy through lost productivity, it's just another way of looking at the problem. And so it's not a better or a replacement perspective, but it's just another perspective to allow us to look at the impact that cancer has. When people are first diagnosed with cancer, their first train of thought wouldn't typically be how much this is going to cost. The same can be said for society at large, with many seeing their health burden as far outweighing the cost implications that follow. Evolving discourse around the numbers might not bring down the immediate cost of treatments, but could do more to usher in a culture of understanding, of mutual respect. Sondra Daverin from the McCabe Centre thinks much of this could be targeted at the insurance companies and change the way the system supports and views those living with the disease. Especially around this issue of genetic testing insurance, there's been a lot of scrutiny of the behaviour of the insurance industry and some suggestions on, on what to do. And it's been the subject of a range of parliamentary inquiries, most recently a joint parliamentary inquiry into the life insurance industry. Their recommendation was firstly that there is a a moratorium on the use of genetic test results in life insurance, which I think is a really good first step. However, Sandra's main call would be for greater transparency of the insurance industry, particularly when it comes to records of their insurance applications and denials. And by that I mean disclosure of information, that insurers should be 
compelled to produce information upon which they have used to make an unfavourable decision. So you can shine a light on the evidence used and and the practices undertaken in the decision-making process. And I think that has real potential to encourage better decision-making and fairer decision-making by insurance authorities. And I guess... We look at the, you know, the Royal Commission into the banking industry, some of the things that have been uncovered, and I'm not for a minute suggesting that there's any, that there are parallels between the industries, but I think shining the light on practices and exposing practices that are unfair, it changes that power imbalance and it changes the disadvantage that individuals and especially individuals who have ill health are facing when they're trying to challenge a decision by an insurer or deal with financial stress or deal with financial disadvantage. And I think that's a really important step. You don't know it until you know someone that's going through it. So it's it's crazy. Like, I love talking about it because the more people that know, especially with my cancer, it's such a rare cancer. Like, the people I know have died already so um i mean it's me and my me and my chemo buddy sam is doing really well sam lives in dubbo (laughs) but he actually had um he knew of a guy in dubbo that was going through treatment as well with the same doctors same drugs that we're on they were getting treated at life house so reese and calem have actually both recently passed away so you know there's not many of us around still kicking. It's not a very good survival rate. I want to, you know, make sure as many people know. I definitely try to be as positive as possible and not look at the stats and all of that. I mean, everyone copes differently. Some people love to do the research and be as, like, well-researched and know everything about their treatment and their diagnosis and everything. But, you know, I've got family members who are in the medical field and I can rely on them to do that research for me and then I can just live life. I'm not going to let that stop me doing what I want. That's it for Think Health today. If you enjoyed the show and aren't already subscribed, why don't you jump on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and do so. All you have to do is search for Think Health and press subscribe. While you're there, you can leave us a review. It really does help others find the show. We also have a website to ser.com forward slash Think Health. You can jump on there to find out a little more about the show and also listen back to some old episodes. Thank you to Alison Pierce, Sandra Daverin, and also Gemma Crawley for being so open and sharing her story with us all. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Today you heard music from Lee Rosevere, and this is a new track from Ski Mask. It's called Session Ad. 
My name's Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.